I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. Yeah, all right. Welcome to King Culture Live. It is great to have everybody with us uh, today. This is, uh, this is pretty fun, Seth. It is pretty fun. It's always fun to try a new thing and learn from it. So here we are. Yeah, here we are. This is sort of crazy. I, every time we record, I think, like, why is anybody listening to this? And then sometimes I go back and listen because I don't really remember what we talked about. And I hear an insight you gave and I go, oh, that's why they're listening because there's some really good stuff here. So hopefully this will be no exception, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah, it's also just really helpful to get a lot of this stuff out of my system so it doesn't end up on a Sunday morning and make everybody really bored. So that's, <laughs> that's the, the side benefit. It is good to have an outlet for that. So for sure. So what are we talking about tonight? Talking about self-love. Should we do it? To what extent should we do it? When does it interfere with Christian calling? And even where does the secular impulse, like self-love is pretty common as a, as a category now. A lot of like when you're checking out the grocery store, you see the magazines, how to love yourself, you should love yourself, love yourself. And uh, a lot of folks who end up going to therapy or prostitute therapy end up kind of coming away with this core insight of I need to love myself. Hmm. And that's like the big reason that I've been dysfunctional or uh, hyper-reactive is I haven't loved myself. Or, and, and I think that there's this big reaction, that direction that is captivating people's hearts and minds. And I think it's worth, whenever you notice like a major cultural trend of common hmm. like, togetherness, like it's at least scratching an itch that's common to the human soul. But also it's worth as a Christian going, to what extent is this good or bad? Can Christians just get on in the self-love train? Or is it like, I don't know about that. So just in general, you're just seeing this is a big part of a lot of conversation. And you're going, this is something we ought to think about. Yeah, I feel like if I went and talked to any of my non-Christian friends and said, should you love yourself? They'd all say yes. And I'd say, do you struggle with loving yourself? And they'd say yes, Hmm. which I think is interesting. Most of the things that people know we should be doing, there's at least kind of some effort to do it. Um, But they end up, kind of doing this like lie to yourself type thing like self-love means functionally I need to not notice my downsides or I need to not pay attention to parts about myself that aren't lovely and mm-hmm. so I just need to focus on the good so it ends up being kind of like this positivity optimism thing mm. and it ends up creating this like dissonance and so well and it seems to me like in a lot of church environments right because a lot of what we do here is talk about how what's going on in the culture is also affecting the church it seems like, I mean, I've definitely heard Christians say, well, goodness, if Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, you better love yourself. So that's one approach in the church. It seems like there's a pretty other extreme, though, which is like, love yourself. Your whole problem is you love yourself too much, you know, and, and a little bit of the, you know, keep Christ in Christmas, Merry Christmas. <laughs> yeah. By the way, that's my favorite part of uh, the previous episodes is when, when Seth uh, hollered at me about keeping Christ in Christmas. Christmas. Yeah, but it can, it can kind of feel like, well, if, if the culture's saying that, then we'd better say the opposite. And what I appreciate even about this conversation, and maybe we'll end up saying it is the opposite. I'm not sure yet. Yeah. Um, but I at least like the idea of going, let's reflect on it. Rather than just cream it and dismiss it out of hand, let's talk about what we see. Yeah, so that, whole, that, that text, if anyone would follow me, they must deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow me. There seems to be this sense in which Jesus talks about the self almost exclusively negatively. So does Paul that the self must be crucified, the self must be mortified, the self must be overcome by the spirit. And it's, there's at least a little bit of a sense of like the spirit overcomes the self to help the person become who God designed them to be. And yeah, so, when Jesus is saying love your neighbors yourself, it, he doesn't seem to be saying 
love yourself more. He seems to just be saying, hey, you just naturally take care of yourself. Yeah, there's a, there's a presumption that you do love yourself. But then what also is difficult is I talk to a lot of Christians who probably more so than loving themselves or having affection for themselves or acting on their behalf, self-sabotage, neglect themselves, or loathe themselves. Like yeah. there's a sense of self-hatred. And some of that, when you read texts about sin and, and brokenness and folly and you experience the fruit of your own folly or the fruit of your own sin, the way it hurts other people, like the temptation to self-loathing and self-hatred, if you're paying attention, is very real and, and obvious. Like this is, like we don't even keep up our own standards. Uh, we commit to doing something, we don't do it, we fall through. Like the basic command of yes, be yes, no, be no, we don't do that. And how am no. I supposed to like ha- have affection for that type of person who's so... Uh, wonky willy-nilly. Mm. And so I think that uh, this, nowhere does the Bible say hate yourself, but it does say mortify yourself. But also God made me. Also I'm made in God's image. Also I'm supposed to put myself to death. And so to what extent do it, does love play out in my own life? And should I have affection for myself, act in my own regard? Or should I consider others more significant than myself and love them? And how do we walk that tension? How do we do that balance? Well, there's no doubt that the Bible talks a lot more about self-denial there was probably a generation even in Western culture that was more interested in self-denial. You don't hear a lot of talk about that unless maybe you're part of the military or part of sports or part of some other larger cause, right? So there's a lot of emphasis on not self-denial, but self-fulfillment, self-expression, and therefore it seems like self-love. Yeah, and so the, the two big questions we have to ask is, what is the self and then what is love? If we're going to talk about self-love, mm. we got to break those things down. And so... Uh, as, as a self, we need to understand, if we're going to understand ourself or ourselves or what it means to be a self, in light of the biblical story, uh, it actually begins really positively. This is what's one of the interesting things about the Bible is uh, it tells us a narrative, we find ourselves in it, and a lot of people become Christians understanding, like, I'm a sinner, Jesus died for me, and so the first thing we learn about ourselves or taught about ourselves is I'm a sinner and I have a sin problem which is not where the Bible starts. The Bible starts Genesis 1 and 2, remarkably positive, that God makes humanity, that they're in his image, they're in his likeness, they have, they're called to subdue and have dominion, which is kingly and queenly language, that they're called to have and make culture their icons, in a way that like we might say Harry Styles is an icon, meaning he's a representative of a cultural moment, and he's also significant to creating that cultural moment. Uh, humans are called image bearers or icons. Mm. We're called to be culture makers, representative of something larger than ourselves, and tremendous dignity. And the way the, the creation narrative culminates is that humanity has made creation now very good. It was good, 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 and it's humanity, and it's very good. And so just starting there, that Moses is writing the Pentateuch to a group of people who just came out of slavery, who have been had their dignity erased for generations uh, through, like, the Egyptian... Uh, insecurity they subjugate them and push them aside and then you have the the affirmation through the hand of moses by the spirit that you are very good Hmm. and so that sense that self that preservation of god's image is really important and it it matters a ton and so so a minute ago you said that that paul and jesus seem to have mostly a negative view of self yes but you just said that genesis 1 says it's more positive yeah so moses is positive on the self Paul's negative on the self, do Moses and Paul disagree? But I think part of it is the way that Paul's talking about the self is he's explicitly referring to the self as engine for justification, the self as it relates to participation in the new creation, the self as it relates to the capacity and the ability 
to self-direct, self-determine, and self-save. And in that sense, the self is broken. That's why you get in Genesis chapter 3, is the self misdirects. And so all of creation is disordered or misdirected or going the wrong way. And in a way, it's kind of like you have a Ferrari that's driving on the wrong side of the freeway. Mm. All of a sudden, that thing that was an asset now is a liability. All of a sudden, that thing that was awesome and amazing now is life-threatening and causing problems. And so it's going the wrong direction, it's headed the wrong way, and it's being driven by the, an idiot, which is Which is, <laughs> which us. is the yeah. self. Which is the self, <laughs> yeah. right? And so it's a self-driving Ferrari it's a self-driving that's headed the wrong Ferrari. direction. <laughs> yeah, it is a Tesla who's running over small people and things and dogs. Yeah. So, so I think that when you understand the self and conscious Genesis 3, all of a sudden now you have this mixed view of the self. That whenever I'm talking about how God made me, I, want to, I just want to be myself, or I want to be who God made me, or uh, I'd, I'm called to love myself. The question is, which, which self are we talking about? Mm. Are you talking about the created self or the fallen self? Uh, so this would be a distinction that as Christians we would have, that we wouldn't expect our non-Christian friends and neighbors to be making that distinction. No, no. In, in the secular world, there's just the uh, their surviving self, the thing that is in me that's led my gen- past generations of evolutionary data that has culminated in, like, the only thing that as I can say about myself is that it has succeeded in surviving. I can't attach moral value to it. I can't attach uh, financial value to it. I can't really attach any substantive value to it besides saying it is, it exists that I am the same thing as a rock, I just happen to be here. That uh, all I can say about myself is that it contains ingredients from past generations that uh, enabled it to survive and go on surviving. And so any view of So this is another place, I mean, this feels like just this recurring theme throughout our conversations, where to hold a truly consistent secular worldview is kind of incompatible with real life. Right? When people who would think of themselves as more secular, not really believers in God, they still are borrowing from a Christian story to say, myself matters. Yeah, if you believe in human rights, if you believe in women's rights, like basically if you believe in anybody has rights except for the rich and the powerful, which then you have to have some type of robbing from the biblical story because there's no uh, Darwinistic position, no secular worldview. Even if they say, like, well, we as a society have decided to treat people with dignity and value because it serves society, that is, again, not an ought. That's just an is. That's just what has happened, and it's collectively served us. And so it's hardly a ground or an imperative or a reason to go on treating people morally or ethically or anything like that. Like, I, I just heard this podcast, another guy was talking about how morality was invented in the Enlightenment because it teaches people right and wrong and creates cause-effect illusions in society. If we just get rid of morality, then we can get back to having like free selves who are able to um, exist in nature. And I'm going, well, at least he's attempting to be consistent, yeah, saying that nature sure. has no morals, but also he's going to go ahead and live the rest of his life as though morals are real. And so you can assert whatever you want, but you can't functionally live a life yeah. Like that. You're, unless that guy is a serial killer, well, he doesn't well, you believe can what he's selling. until you rob him. Yeah. I, I'm literally thinking if I was in that podcast room and I punched him straight in the throat, I would say, Do you still believe what you just said? And he would probably go, ah. <laughs> <laughs> And he'd be very tempted to recant and say, All of a sudden I believe in a God and there's yeah. a judge and morality is objective. And, and so, 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 so first we look at self. And so we're saying in the biblical story, Self is inherently good, corrupted by sin. We become the self-driving Ferrari going the wrong way down the freeway. Are there other things that we need to consider if we're going to think about 
what we mean by self. Yeah, there's a third horizon, which is, so non-Christians have a created and a fallen self, and they are a mixed bag. When someone becomes a Christian, you have the spirit of God as a foretaste of the new creation, renewing the inner person and helping conquer the sin that's in that person, helping conquer the indwelling sin. And that person, their soul, becomes a foretaste of new creation, like the, the ice cream sample ahead of the real thing. And so for Christians, there's this threefold layer to our self. Hmm. There's our created self, our fallen self, and our regenerated self, or our being renewed self. It's interesting. I feel like that's a paradigm that we actually could lay over lots of areas of life. Lots of areas, yeah. And so this is helpful in marriage. If I see my spouse as created, fallen, and being redeemed, then I get to see her as like a sinner and a sufferer and as someone who the Spirit is taking hold of and taking somewhere where she wasn't going to go on her own. And so we see that the self is remarkably complex. So just basically loving yourself as a broad category is dangerous because you go, well, which self? Yeah, which layer? Which layer? Yeah. Because obviously there's one layer there that I do not want to nurture. I do not want to cultivate. I do not want to give space. Like I want to starve it, root it, destroy it, mutilate it. And discerning what that is sometimes is pretty difficult. Yeah. So we talked about how you have to understand self. The next word we've got to understand is love. Yeah, and so love is uh, a complex word because in English it means, you know, I love french fries, I love water, uh, I love pickles, and I love my wife, and I love God. And, yeah, and it's, and it's a I'll, wide range of hopefully the way you love pickles and the way you love your wife and the Lord are different. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, substantially different. Um, they all add value to my life. You know, that's why I love them. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> For now, I guess. But the, 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 the reality is that the concept can be so generic, right? And so if you look up even the way that secular therapists try to talk about concepts of self-love, a lot of the times what they encourage is like saying affirmations, um, you know, I am loved, I am beautiful, I am well-received, I am powerful. And so you're kind of affirming things about yourself. So mm -hmm. in that sense, love is saying nice things to yourself about yourself. Other people talk about love more in the context of affection. Like you should have warm regard for yourself and you should nurture that warm regard for yourself. Other people talk about love more explicitly, like self-love as explicitly having to do with the responsibilities you have to yourself. Like you should mm -hmm. take a shower and get a haircut. Uh, wear clean clothes, that's self-love. So it's more like a duty to self, yeah. ability to function. But the concept of self-love is not new. It goes all the way back to Aristotle. He had this whole, whole genre of self-love as the duty required that you're supposed to take care of yourself in such a way and cultivate the good in yourself in a way that it serves the common good. That was Aristotelian hmm. view of self-love. Well, and that, that reminds me, I mean, in a way, like the definition I've been using over the years here, which I think I got from Paul Tripp, is that love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand payback or that the person is self-deserving. And so is that an okay definition of love? I think that's a, a really good partial definition of love. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I think love also is an affection. I think it's affection hmm. that does what you just described. Like I think we can't... Yeah, to say it's just willing self-sacrifice feels a little too duty only. Yeah, it's, it's willing self-sacrifice, but it's driven by affection and regard for the other person or the other thing. Mm. And so uh, I love God, I have affection for him, and so I obey him. It's not just the obedience. I mean, the obedience is the outcome and the product of and the test of love. But if I try to obey out of like some cold, distant, duty-oriented, exclusive thing, it's not sustainable, it's non-relational, and it actually misunderstands like the beauty and winsomeness of God, that... Mm when I actually have affection for him, regard for him, uh, I'm more 
interested in obeying him. So yeah, it's interesting because it seems him. like in some situations, the affection seems really important, right? We just described If I only obey God out of willing self-sacrifice, well, where's the, where's the love? Where's the affection, right? I mean, you can't but use the word. On the other hand, if I'm trying to love an enemy who I don't have affection for, I may have to go, you know what, the way I'm going to love them is through the willing self-sacrifice, through the duty, even though they don't deserve it, even though they're not reciprocal, even though they don't appreciate it. And maybe over time, the affection will come. Yes, and I think sometimes the actions drive the affection, sometimes the affections drive the actions. Either way, we're called to pursue those things. And so even when loving an enemy, if I'm understanding that threefold layer of self, my enemy, who their fallen self has caused them to be hostile to me or against me or sabotaging me, um, I can acknowledge that the part of them that I hate or disregard or don't have affection for is the fallen part of them. But even my enemies, like I think about Christ on the cross, he sees the people killing him, he says, forgive them Lord, they know not what they do. He's able to kind of see the naivety, the folly, and the creator, the createdness that these people are still made in God's image even as they sin against me. And so when you understand that threefold layer of self, you can even see that in another person, that despite your hostility towards me, I can still see, like if, if you... I keep going with punch me in the throat because it's a, your throat's right here. <laughs> I would so. prefer that you didn't. Yeah, you punch me in the throat, I go, okay, that was Luke's fallen self, but I still see him as um, creature made in God's image. And so the... Should we, should we test it, gang? Give it a ride, <laughs> give it a ride, yeah. Get your money's worth is what he was thinking. <laughs> so love is both affection and action and those things work together in the concept of love. And, and that's a big part of where I think a healthy understanding of self-love really comes from is, uh, so here's a question, should I have warm regard or affection for myself? And should I do things that act in my best interests or preserve myself? Like the willing, so I self-sacrifice myself for the good of myself? <laughs> right, like sure. That, in going to that definition. And this is where I think I wanna, I wanna bring it to the text of scripture is you have those two like really common texts in the New Testament, love your neighbor as yourself. There's a sense in which scripture's assuming we love ourselves and in that sense, I think it's talking about self-preservation. Uh, another text, do unto others as you do unto yourself, meaning you would probably do, like if you think about... You would probably not punch yourself in the throat. Probably not punch yourself in the throat, yeah. Yeah, if you're kind of trying to actually take yourself seriously and in, that, in an appropriate way, act in your own best interests uh, and consider your feelings, consider what you want, be tuned in on that stuff, then that's an important part of that. Um, but there's a, a different concept of self-love that I want to kind of sit with here, um, and it comes from Exodus 20, verse 13, which is, uh, we see this same text is repeated twice, so you see this in Deuteronomy, um, and you see this in Exodus, it's the text, thou shalt not murder, or you shall not kill, you shall not murder. Part of the Ten Commandments. Part of the Ten Commandments, it's reiterated twice, uh, and the word is ritzach, uh, and so King James says, you shall not kill. ESV says you shall not murder, which is obviously different. You shall not kill means like don't join the military. You shall not murder means uh, don't kill someone recklessly or necessarily. So uh, what's, that, what's being forbidden here uh, in the word ritzak? Is it uh, all killing of persons? Is it murdering of persons? Things like that. And there are a handful of these things that I, I think it's worth just noticing, looking at, is the way this text shows up. This word shows up, I think, about 45 times in the Old Testament. Oh. And most of those are in the book of Moses. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So we see um, this appear in Deuteronomy 19, verses 4 to 6. Um, it says, if anyone, neighbor kill, if anyone kills a neighbor unintentionally, uh, this person is called a murderer. Um, and it talks about a situation where they go out and they're going to 
uh, chop down some trees and the head of the axe flies off and kills the person. Was this part of your COVID sermon? Yeah, when on, on the COVID sermon I talked about yeah. uh, negligence as, right. yeah, as yeah. murder. Watch out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, things I would do differently. But anyway, so <laughs> the, 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 when I preached in this room by myself on the first, first day of COVID, but the whole like, uh, if you are chopping wood and you haven't been careful to tighten the head of your axe and you're negligent, and in your negligence, the head of the axe flies off and kills someone, uh, the word the Bible uses for that is retzak, murder. Mm. That you're, you're liable, you're responsible. And so you see that foolishness or negligence or careless disregard is a big chunk of what it means to be a murderer. Hmm. And so uh, you could call this uh, like disregard or carelessness, whatever you talk about that. But another text you see, uh, I think it's in Deuteronomy 22, so another book of Moses one, uh, you have uh, a man's attacking his uh, murderous neighbor and uh, there, there's a, a death that leads to this and um, they, they talk about how they accidentally lead to death and that's again called murder and that person's liable of blood guilt. In other texts we see this in the book of Exodus where uh, there's an owner of an ox and the ox... Uh, it's kind of a test case. They say, hey, uh, if this ox gores someone and they die, um, but it hasn't happened before, uh, then that person's not guilty, uh, doesn't have blood guilt. Mm. Um, but if that person has been, or that ox has been accustomed to goring, sure. meaning prevalent, like this has been an ongoing thing, sure. and if the owner has not yet killed the ox that's accustomed to goring, then the owner has the guilt of blood on him. And yeah, so- right, that would be why a lot of people after a dog freaks out and attacks a child or attacks a person, a lot of times you put the dog to sleep for that same reason. Yeah, it's a, you become responsible. Once an ox has demonstrated a pattern, you, there's economic loss and cost. There's, like, the cost of replacing an ox in, in ancient sure. is tremendous. Yeah, yeah, that'd be costly. And it's one of those, like, hey, you know, the ox didn't gore me. You know, it's like survivor's <laughs> bias, you know, and, and, and that type of thing. So, but it's the same. There's guilt of blood on your hands if you don't prevent a preventable death. And so that word retzak includes this broad case of uh, carefulness, conscientiousness, consideration. So, so if we can circle back retzak to the self. The self. Like I don't, if I'm not making that connection. So the whole offense here is the reason you don't murder is because people are made in God's image. And careless disregard affects your view of self. That in 1900... 3 percent, uh, 1,900, over 50 percent of deaths were caused by infectious diseases. Wow. 1,900, so it's 120 years ago. Yeah. Now, even with COVID, 3 percent of human deaths are caused by infectious diseases, whereas over half now include heart disease, cancers, suicide. Mm. Uh, so you have suicide and suicide by lifestyle. Uh, you have these, this like disregard, preventable, actionable diseases that largely stem from neglect of self. Now, not all heart disease, not all cancer, not all lung cancer. Sure. Like, so, um, but a lot of like lifestyle contributors play into these things. 
whether um, it has to do with what the food we put in our bodies, whether we exercise, whether we care, uh, the way we sleep, uh, even like dementia, Alzheimer's, you know, isn't necessarily causal by lack of sleep, but it can be contributive lack of sleep, huge predictor of these things. And so running too hard, not putting good food in your body, not exercising, not getting your 150 minutes that doctors like expect or require. Uh, uh, there's this uh, book called Love Thy Body that I've talked about a handful of times, mm-hmm. written by a secular MD guy, journalist. And he talks about what is astonishing about the human body is that it takes ages to commit suicide by lifestyle. That it, this, the liver and the kidneys ordinarily just function so well and insanely good that they just go on. They're just fighting stuff off fighting cr- like stuff crazy off. all the time. Yeah, fighting stuff off like crazy all the time. That you can smoke, chain smoke and eat potato chips and do n- lay in front of the glowing screen in your house for 65 years and your body keeps taking most, like in most circumstances, the yeah. body keeps going. And you're that like, is amazing. Like it's, it's not like you have to eat carrots and take multivitamins all day long to make it. 60 years like what other machine on earth even comes close to that like you don't change your oil in your car for six months it's over right? <laughs> like it's toasted you don't you don't run your like a, if you get 20 years out of some man-made machine it is a miracle and here like on earth part of what is so shattering about premature death is it's so exceptional that most people neglect themselves their whole life and still make it 60 70 80 years yeah and and so even like whether it's overconsumption of alcohol or other substances or things like that, uh, I think it's important for us to even like when it comes to taking care of yourself, self-preservation is a big part of that. Herman Bobbink has this quote that I think um, really highlights this. So he's, he's talking about self-love versus self-preservation. And he says, uh, there are these duties towards ourselves that we should call them self-preservation, not the instinct for self-preservation because animals have instinct for self-preservation, but self-preservation. It's not inevitable or automatic, but it is moral and valid both for soul and for the body. Save yourself for your life's sake is what it says in Genesis 19:17 and Acts 2:40. Uh, to save is a general biblical notion, to preserve, to seek the good. Um, if in this regard we talk about self-love, then it's appropriate. So yeah, that's interesting. Acts 2:40 is Paul preaching, or no, Paul Peter preaching at Pentecost to these folks who put Jesus to death, saying, save yourselves. Turn to Jesus out of a sense of a love for yourself. Yeah, Don't do you, perish. Do don't you die. Have Turn any to regard, Do you have any regard for yourself? Yeah. So repent right now. Yeah. And so the greatest act of self-love is repentance and faith. Hmm. That the best that's interesting because that's also, in a sense, the greatest act of self-denial. At the same time, your greatest moment of self-denial is your greatest moment of self-love, which is when you turn from sin and trust in Christ. Hmm. And so that, I think, like conversion, the moment, is, is I think, the greatest picture of self-love. But it goes beyond that, that there's like this value and dignity in the human body that we're going, hey, don't murder yourself, neglect yourself over time, that you are an emblem and representative, an icon, an image bearer, and investing time in your sleep, in your diet, in your exercise, in your psychosomatic health, in your, in your spiritual health, your emotional health, all of this if you call like the prevention of premature death or decay self-love, then it's totally valid. And especially we're talking about that created self and that regenerated self, like spend time, invest in that. Like we, one of the things we say on staff is we have that phrase, you know, an, a carpenter or a, a lumberjack. A lumberjack. That's a really well-known phrase. Really well-known it phrase seems like. <laughs> Someone who cuts lumberjack, right? A lumberjack never wasted time sharpening his ax. Yeah. That like investing. Which when you first hear that, you're like, wait a minute. But it's like, no, every time you sharpen your axe, you're not wasting time. 
you're not wasting time when you sharpen your axe. Yeah. You're becoming more effective in what you're called to do. Yeah. And so investing into yourself, going to school, um, getting counseling, sleeping as much as you can, whether you have newborns or not. Uh, you know. so, so if a non-Christian is saying, okay, I, I need to love myself, meaning I need to do all those things you just said. I need to take care of myself and sleep and exercise and eat well. And, you know, you're, you go, okay, great. Like, no problem with that. Um, what would be the kinds of self-love that we ought to be more careful of? Well, I think it's important to understand that the biblical responsibility to self-preservation, meaning I think having affection and regard for oneself as God's image, that I am valuable, I am designed, I am made, I am uh, created as God's representative. Like that should lead me to have a pretty high view of myself especially relative or maybe the rest of creation. Maybe not to other people. So I feel like sometimes humans try to find self-love or self-affection in comparison to other humans. Mm. But I think the main way that God wants us to find our self-regard or self-dignity is in comparison to the rest of creation. Like Psalm 8 talks about how we were made a little lower than the angels but higher than everything else. That yeah, we, that we oh, that's rule. a good point. And so uh, this is not going to be very encouraging to people. If someone says, like, I hate myself, I'm like, you're way more advanced than the monkeys. <laughs> you know? It's like, look at yourself. You're way better than the animals. And so just like the, the dignity. Well, even the capacity to hate yourself. Yes. Is a higher capacity than the animals. Yeah, the rational capacity. You know, the, no monkeys ever had thoughts of self-loathing or suicide. Like they, they never had to process that. At least that we know. Yeah, we, they never told us about it. <laughs> We've never heard from them that that's how that's played out. But I think, uh, so some non-Christian goes, I just need to love myself more. Most of the time, I'm going to say, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Because a lot of times what happens is people start saying that when they've uh, been uh, pretending to be someone different than they are, and then the jig is up and the cat's out of the bag. Like there's, uh, they've been in some relationship where they're not treated with dignity or value, and they start to believe maybe I don't have dignity or value, and they go, you know what, I deserve this. Yeah, that person, they suck, but guess what? Uh, I can't get better. I don't deserve better than them, and so they're as good as I can get, and so I guess I'll just be with that person. And they're going, you know what, I actually deserve to be someone who likes me and is interested in me and cares about me, and in, like in that dating type context, at least that's yeah. what a lot of my peers are in. And on that, I'm like, yeah, you deserve better than that. Like, I have one of my friends who's talking about, like, how they kind of feel pressure to engage sexually with their spouse in order to get that person to talk to them about their life. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, you are more valuable than that. Yeah, you sure. should not do that. Right. Like, you should not, like, pay a toll to get across the road called emotional connection with your body. Like, you're, like... Yeah, you're and, too valuable. Yeah, I'll tell the person, like... You're made in God's image. You should love yourself enough to know that you shouldn't have to do that in order to get that. That's mm-hmm. not the way this works. And so some of that I want to encourage fan and flame. Other ways I hear people talk about self-love, self-regard, self-preservation is, you know what? I just have decided that I'm going to serve nobody. Mm. I'm going to do me. Other people uh, want me to uh, consider their needs, and I'm not going to do it. Other people uh, maybe want to speak it in my life and I'm not going to listen to them. I know me. It's the, the big me monster. Mm. Um, I, I, I've paid my dues in other places. I've done my time, and now I'm going to kind of live for me. It's also this belief that only I know me. Mm. Yeah. David Brooks, in his book, The Road to Character, talks about um, self-expressionism as like the way we understand ourselves. That the me is this thing deep in there. I need to find it and let it out. 
and only I can see it. And anybody who tells me, I don't think that's the real you, or I don't think that's really you, and I think that's you being reactive, or I think that's you, you, you got that from your parents because of how they treated you. I don't think that's really you. I don't think that's your personality. I think that's being rude. You know, like I think mm-hmm. God doesn't make rude people by design. I think people become rude and that's something we repent of, right? Yeah. So that's just my personality. It's like, that's not, I mean, that is how you're presenting yourself. Yeah. But you as God's image bearer, God did not make you a jerk. You've become that. And so you can unbecome that. Yeah. And so trying to cast a vision for like those parts of ourselves that don't reflect the spirit of God, congruence with Christ, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Uh, so I hear a lot of non-Christians and Christians that if there's life is not marked by those eight things, you're like, oh, it's just my personality. Hmm. Um, like, okay, well, the spirit of God is here to change your personality. Yeah, sure. And, and that's not a bad thing. And he's going to help us become the better version of ourselves. And so there can be like this. Yeah, that third layer, right? Yeah, the third layer. Yeah, Yeah, putting it in park on, yeah, yeah, that's just how I am. I'm mean, I'm rude, I'm callous, I'm sarcastic. I'm inconsiderate. I don't think about people. Yeah, Um, that would be parking on the second layer of that cake, right? Where it's like, I'm just going to live with the old self. Right, and the Apostle Paul is saying, put put that guy to death. Yeah. You know, you've been raised with Christ. You've been baptized with Christ. You have a new life with Christ. Lean into him. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Yeah, I have two friends. One of them was a highly successful soccer coach. One of them was a highly successful volleyball coach. Okay. And the highly successful soccer coach and volleyball coach. Both are, I think, a year or two older than me. They both have kids about my exact same age. So the two kids are like in that ankle biter body <laughs> training phase of things, right? And so... Uh, the guy who is a soccer coach is a great man of God. And he has been feeling this tension with, like he's won multiple state championships on multiple levels, gets job offers all over the place, come coach our soccer team. And he's going, I have a full-time job, coaching soccer would be nights and weekends. I have two little kids at home, a wife. Um, if I want to really pursue two careers at the same time, which is what it would be. Because right now coaching soccer is like a side thing. It's a side thing, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it would, and so he, and it so would, he goes. If I want to coach two things, do two things at the same time, it's it going to just cost too much. It would require my wife yeah. to be a single wife. It would require me to be absent from my kids right. in the prime of their lives. I mean, not the prime of their lives, the formative. You know, I hope it's <laughs> the ankle biting part. I of their hope lives. it's not the prime of their lives. <laughs> you know, it's all downhill from here. So. But the, but the, they're in that stage, and so he goes. You know what? I'm going to not coach soccer. I'm going to choose at all. Or just not as a full-time thing. He's not going to do it right now. Wow. He prays, considers, goes, you know, God made me a good soccer coach. God also made me a husband. He also Mm -hmm. made me a dad. He also made me someone needs to provide. He also made me... Yeah, my brother-in-law kind of did this. He played pro hockey and coached state championship hockey teams, and he gave it up so he could coach his boys. Yeah, and so he's going, you know what? God made me all these things, and the sinful part of me kind of wants to never let the dream die and keep pursuing the sports thing because it's like feels more manly than like the public education thing. You know? Well, and probably, I mean, I, just knowing from having some athletic background, it's so much of your identity Yes. that I, if I were him, I'd probably be thinking like that giving up soccer is giving up me. Like it's letting my, who I am, like probably everywhere you go, people ask you, hey, tell, how's the soccer thing going? Right, and so that, yeah, that's a big loss. And he goes, I'm choosing to be home more with my wife and kids. And, oh, 
And so my other buddy, volleyball coach, not a Christian, he hears this guy did this, and he goes, bruh. You, this because he's a volleyball coach, he says, bruh. You know, so that's, that's how that works. <laughs> okay. He goes, bro, you have got to love yourself mm. more than you love anybody else. And if you don't love yourself, then how do you expect your wife to love you? If you don't love yourself, how do you expect your kids to love you? If you don't fill your tank, you have nothing to give away. And so you have to choose yourself first if you're going to really go far. And so this guy feels like the idea of dying to myself feels like death. And I'm not going to be able to, if I don't see myself as volleyball player, volleyball coach, then I'm going to loathe myself. And so if I give that up, then my identity's gone and I got nothing. Mm. And so this guy is out coaching volleyball, nights and weekends, has another job, gone all the time. And, and so in a sense, you could say they're both operating out of self-love. In a sense, they're both loving themselves. And my soccer coach friend, almost said his name, that would be a huge problem. Actually, If he friend, listens, he'll have no idea. He'll have no idea. That it's him. <laughs> yeah. There's so many. Neither will his wife. Yeah. Bruh. Bruh, yeah. yeah. That guy's not listening, so just <laughs> not worry about that. Okay. Uh, but and not anymore. And not anymore, yeah. yeah. But this, this tension of like, when you believe in Christ and you believe that we do the dying and participating as, in his sufferings and we give away ourselves and that Christ does the, and the Father does the rising, so we participate in him and dying to ourselves and give our life away, that what profit, what, what does it profit someone to gain the whole world and lose their soul? Um, that we actually, like, in giving away our life, we actually gain. It's more blessed to give than to receive. That it's better to love than to be loved, uh, then I actually see that me loving others sacrificially is, in a way, loving myself. Because it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when I understand in God's economy that's how that functions, that's the direction and flow of things, then I feel free to do that. And it's not a matter of becoming a doormat, not having desires, not being mindful of the stuff, but it's actually choosing to be the type of person who gives away wins and celebrates others and props them up and, and helps them go. Yeah. And so a big part of like self-love, I think, begins with this core idea that like I need to agree with God about me and other people. That if I agree with God about me, then I have this multi-layered self. Mm. And there's this inquiring that I do, like which part of me is wanting this? Which part of me is wanting that? And which, like this self-regard, self-protection, investing in myself, my emotional, physical, spiritual health, like that's all down payments into the kingdom of God. Like I think about, I'm constantly digging a well so that others can drink from it. Mm -hmm. that's, that's part of the way, reason that I do this, why we care for ourselves, why we do this thing. But I also, I can't just agree with God about me, but I also need to agree with God about others, mm. which is that they deserve to be served, yeah. that they deserve to be loved. And, I, and, and that's difficult mm -hmm. to wrestle with. Well, I, I live with this tension, and I know you do too, right? There's a whole approach to leadership and ministry of at least some people who are like, hey man, you got one life, burn it out. Like, you got eternity to rest. You know what? Hey, go for it. Like, don't, you know, die tired kind of a thing, you know, which I'm on my way. Um, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, a guy that shaped my life significantly, Tom Schrader, he used to tell me, hey, Luke, like, ministry's a black hole. It's never finished. You'll never have a day where you're like, I did it. It's done. It's like, it's never done. And he would say, Christ died for the church. You don't have to. 
And so on one hand, I go, well, okay, so, but there's more people to call, and there's more people to visit, and there's more sermons to preach, and there's more content to create, and there's more podcasts we could do, and there's more. And so um, it kind of rubber meets the road here. How do you how do you navigate that? How do you navigate that of going, okay, on one hand, I am called to love and invest in others, and that actually is a way of being my most true self and loving my true self is by serving others. And on the other hand, I've got to, you know, if I, if I burn out, I can't serve them for very long, so I need to run this at a sustainable pace. You know, how do you, how do you navigate that? There's So far. Yes. As a young man. Yeah. As a very experienced person doing a lot of things for a long time. Let me tell you about how I navigate that. Uh, so one lesson I did learn, it's like when Jay was born, um, he... It was obviously zero when he was born, so I wasn't going to say it. But he's, Thank you, yeah, he's, Dr. He's, Seth Trout. He was born age zero, so just to be clear. Uh, but I you know, took, I don't know, two weeks off, and he was a particularly screaming first couple of months. Then at basically age three, he became somehow the easiest kid ever, and then we didn't know what happened, so we all celebrated. But I came back, and remember, there's a couple like uh, counseling meetings I had with people at the church, where I was just fried. I think I'd slept like two and a half hours. Like my eyes are like bloodshot. People are telling me like these very difficult, sad things. And my nervous system is shot. And I'm thinking about the command to weep with those who weep. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm sorry that happened to you, but I just do not care. And I can't, I can't manufacture care. Like I have nothing to give you. And, and they were wounded by This that. was after your two weeks off. <laughs> yes, it was after my two weeks off. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, it's first time kid. Don't know what's going on. He's starving to death. And they felt it. They, they were wounded by that. Yeah. Like they were like, man, I heard from other people. Uh, hey, did you meet with so and so? Yeah, I did. They're like, yeah, I didn't go. How did you think that went? You know? <laughs> you know? And, yeah. and I'm like, I don't know. They told me the sad stuff. And I was like, yeah, I'm sorry that happened to you. And, and, and they're like, yeah, that was wounded. And so I had to like circle back and apologize. And, and like when I was like rested and able to be present to someone in their pain. And so like that's why I came away with this phrase that I tell myself and all the folks who work with us like no experience of you is better than a bad experience of you yeah <laughs> that like if i'm not gonna be present and able to love someone well it's kind of better for me not to be there that if i'm gonna just show up and make it worse because i haven't yeah. slept in two days or whatever it is and so which some people will take as a license to just go well then i guess i just won't be around much you know yeah. it's like yeah. Well, that, we're not saying For that some either. people, any experience of you is worse than any experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, and so just trying to like, yeah. so I feel like I discovered some of my limits. Mm-hmm. And I feel like discovering your limits is part of what growth requires. Like I'm watching The Rings of Power on Amazon Prime, okay. which is the new Lord of the Rings yeah. shtick. And so... Let me guess, it's a hundred hours long. <laughs> it is... <laughs> It is hours long, <laughs> 70, 70 minute episodes. But it is it like there's this core scene in one of the recent episodes. So if you're listening to this podcast, they're all recent episodes. It just came out. Yes, <laughs> in one of those. Yeah, thank you. Um, where there's this elf, who you know the part of the elves is the elves don't sleep, the elves don't get tired, the elves don't age. They're just like humans, but better in every way, except for their ears are worse. Right? That's like the, that's what the elves are. <laughs> And, and there's this human civilization island and there's an elf there and like the, the leader of the human guild is like, do you want elves here? 
doing jobs, competing with you, who don't take naps, who don't get tired, who don't get older, and who are strong, like basically like they hate the elves yeah. because the humans have limits and the elves don't. Mm. They, that's part of what they hate about them. Like they, they're resenting the limits of humanity and going, you mean we have to sleep and we have to get better at things over time <laughs> and we have to rest yeah. and we have to take days off. Like you'd feel threatened if an elf came along who was like, oh, you're a carpenter? Me too, except for I'm better than you and I don't sleep and I can, <laughs> I can, right. do, I can do 40 jobs in time, you can do eight, sure. right? So I can charge less and I'm supposed to compute that. So, but they hate the elves because they have no limits. And I think that's so much of uh, this like self-denial, self-love thing is recognizing that a lot of times the Lord takes you to your limits mm. and he grows you by taking you a little beyond your limits. But if you spend too much time beyond your limits, you will burn out and you will crash and you will not do well and you'll end up not loving anybody. Yeah. Like, well, it's the whole, I mean, it's you're on a plane, put your oxygen mask on before you help your baby. Yeah, and so I think limits are discerned in community. Yeah. I, I think, and especially they're discovered uh, later on in life. Like I think there's something different about like a young man. Like it's, you know, one of my memory verses that I say to myself at the time is, Lamentations 3.27, which is it's good for the young man to bear the yoke in his youth. Mm. Uh, it doesn't say it's good for old men to bear yokes because there's something about like being pushed to the limit in youth that is natural and formative and required. And it's good to like maybe work too hard in your 20s. Yeah. And then over the course of your 30s and 40s, discover, pull it back, figure it out what's sustainable. Sure. But I think, like, folks who are, like, 24 years old who are all concerned about sustainability and rest, that's a problem for me. Like, I feel like <laughs> you, need, you need to, like, spend time sure. bumping up against your limits and feeling that pain. That's part of the development process. Yeah. And that's why I think a part of it is discerning community. So um, I go, hey, I don't do anything because I have, like, 700 boundaries that can never be overcome. You're like, hey, man, like, you could show up for someone every now and then. Like, sure. I feel like you're hiding behind boundaries in the name of laziness. Or someone else going, hey, your lack of boundaries is actually not servant-heartedness, but it's compulsive need for affirmation, and you keep showing up to people, and uh, you're not really looking there to love people. You're looking there to receive, to feel like you're needed, and that's a huge problem. And so discerning and questioning and calling into question one another's part of that discerning, when does self-denial and self-love, they balance each other out. Yeah. over time hmm. as we deny parts of ourselves and love parts of ourselves and preserve parts of ourselves. Yeah. So love yourself. Maybe. S- maybe. Sometimes. Depending on which self and depending how you're doing it. Anything else you want to say? I just think it's important for folks listening to recognize just this reality that self-care, self-preservation is a good and godly thing. That God does not care exclusively about your soul, but also cares about your body, your nervous system, your physical health, your mental health, your emotional health. And that you'll actually be positioning yourself to be a more effective instrument in the kingdom when you engage in that mode of self-love. I do think that there is, in all of us without exception, a part of ourself that we should resent, the part of ourself that is sinful, that has fallen, that is... Uh, selfish, meaning uh, serving the self to the detriment of others that doesn't see it's ourselves as being born into a community and, and connected to a broader uh, 
network of needs that we're doing in balance, that if we find ourselves unable to what do Philippians 2 talks about, consider others more significant than ourselves, then our self-love has got out of hand. Yeah. And so I think that there are people listening who will be too inclined to self-neglect or self-hatred and be people who are too inclined to like this hyper-boundaried, uh, like you don't need a 48-hour prayer retreat every single week, you know, like, and just trying to come <laughs> sure. to grips with some of those things. Yeah. And so I think that's part of the reason why we need community is to figure out, hey, is this, which part of me is wanting this, which part of me is doing this, and how do I uh, walk that tension in a way that's appropriate? Yeah, well, I appreciate the opportunity just to be challenged to think about, okay, where am I, where am I prone? Which, which side of that horse am I prone to fall off of? Is it the, like, burn myself out? Is it the... Uh, you know, be more self-indulgent. I think that's a good thing to reflect on. So, And just the severity of that, that part of this is rooted in the command to not murder. Thou shalt not murder, Ten Commandments. Yeah. That self-neglect is a huge problem, um, but also not act on behalf of others in a way that neglects them is also liable to murder. And so there's a, a chronic tension there. Mm-hmm. And I still like if someone tells me, like, I need a, like self-love, I need to do more self-love, I still have a visceral kind of eye roll reaction to that just because it's not biblical language. Mm-hmm. Like I think that uh, self-preservation or even just like regard for self is a more like kind of biblical category, image of God. And so uh, it's a good lesson to me that I hear the word self-love. I roll my eyes and I think about it. I'm like, okay, maybe they mean this. And if they mean that, then I'm fine. If they mean this, and not. And so mm-hmm. approaching people's language like that with curiosity is helpful. Well, and I love just, just, I love how engaged you are with people that don't know Christ. And I love that your instinct with them, especially, is not to eye roll, but to say, hey, tell me more. And I think that's part of what we're trying to do in this podcast is, you know, even though we have this tagline of critique the hell out of culture, we've said from the beginning, we don't want to be walking around firebombing, just telling people, hey, get off my lawn. We are really trying to equip each other to be able to engage with people that don't know the Lord and help them see the beauty of who he is. So. And judgment begins with the household of God. And so if we are not wise, curious, humble people, what business does anyone have asking us about, like, tell me more about the hope that you have in the Lord? Yeah, sure. And, and so I think even to become a wise, curious, humble person um, requires thinking of itself on those three levels. Yeah. Well, this has been fun. And man, it's been fun to have all these people. This is way more people than I thought would come when we announced this idea. So, uh, yeah, everybody, thanks for listening. Seth, thanks a bunch. And we'll see you next time. Okay.